0: It won't take you long to figure out that I just think differently than other people. Hey there, it's Stephen Dubner, and that's my Freakonomics friend and co-author Steve Levitt. I've worked for two decades studying strange phenomena, human behavior, and weird circumstances. But Levitt is now ready to start his own podcast. It's called People I Mostly Admire. Listen on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Hi everyone, before we begin, please be advised that this podcast does contain adult themes and it is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. I've been on this journey for well over a year and I've seen way more than I ever could have imagined. But it always comes back to this, there is harm being done in the sex trade and I still want to know how can I help what exactly can I do to make this any better I've also learned that a lot of the harm in the sex trade isn't about the trade itself it has to do with racism misogyny and patriarchy poverty drugs and everything in between you see you and I, we can work on little bits of changing this culture, but we can't defeat this whole thing on our own. I know this is overwhelming, so let's start with what we can do. There is one aspect of this that no one can argue with. The kids involved in this, they are the most vulnerable. So today, we're going to pass the mic on to them. I'm Nor Tagori. This is
2: sold in America. They see me on their corner when they went to work. They see me on their corner when they get off of work. Something is wrong, and nobody's never stopping eggs.
3: I'm not a
0: piece of trash. I'm a human being, and I don't deserve to be treated that way.
4: My biggest concern is I'm homeless and I want a fucking place to stay and I want to be able to eat. But nobody listens to us when we say that.
0: If they pay the price, I will do it. I'm really about my money, but like, I'm not going to lie, I'm expensive. No, these laws they make have a body count. They know that and they don't care.
4: This is not a nightmare. This is your life. (laughs)
5: How are you? I'm good. Good to see you. Good to see you. (laughs) Come on in. In
1: the U.S., the federal government has a really specific definition of trafficking. It's that any sex traded under force, fraud, or coercion falls under that category. And as I've seen on this journey, that's a really hard definition to nail down sometimes. But there is one part of that definition that is not at all ambiguous— Anyone under the age of 18 who's trading sex is considered trafficked.
4: So my mother died when I was nine years old. And during that time, my father had just got out of jail. And my father actually got released from jail like um, probably the same time my mother died. And I think it was a custody battle case between who was going to get us. And so they gave us to my grandmother. And during that time because it was like she wasn't right, I guess. So that's why they was like, okay, let me join them with the state. This is Ashley Sacho.
1: I met her in the home of people who she calls her foster parents. They live out in Maryland. She calls the couple her foster parents, although legally they're not her guardians because by 18, she had aged out of the government care system. If you want to see a picture of Ashley with her family, Text the name Ashley to 202-804-2480. That's A-S-H-L-E-Y to the number 202-804-2480. Right now, she's getting her master's degree and saving up to buy her own house. But growing up, her life was anything but stable. And all of this instability made her really vulnerable to abuse and exploitation.
4: I remember it was the neighbor, Ashley, and, and, and they—and doing it, I really don't like—it's like—, to, it's like hmm. I'm sitting next to Ashley on her couch, and
1: even though she's smiling, I can tell she still has a wall up. She doesn't really do media interviews anymore. And the only reason she's even talking to me right now is because her foster mom was actually my baby brother's principal. And so there was this trust that we already had there. But she tells me how exhausted she is from having to relive those gruesome memories over and over again. Because when media approaches her, those are the details they want to hear about. And I know what that's like. And I want her to know that I'm not here to re-traumatize her. I'm here talking to her as an expert of somebody who has been exploited while in government care. And I don't think that the details of her abuse are what's going to make this story better. Once we get past all of this, she delves into a story, and she starts talking with her hands. She's getting more into it.
4: Don't During that time, it was it was difficult, and it was just like, she would always be like, well, clotheslines don't get fed, clotheslines don't be fed, and, and all this other little stuff. And it was like, well, you just do it one time, and this and that, and we in this together. I thought that we was as a team. Like, I didn't think that, you know, I just— Who was that? It was my cousin, Ashley. But I thought that we was a team or whatever, and I just, you know. Ashley tells me it was a
1: family member who exploited her. It was her older female cousin. And this happened from about age 12 to 16. She says her cousin forced her to have
4: sex with people for money. And, of course, the first couple of times, you're going to be resist- resistant. And I used to drink four locos all the time. And I would not remember the night before, and, and literally— Um, I would have to see videos and it would be crazy because I'd be watching videos, but I'm not remembering myself in them.
1: Did you tell people about what was happening to
4: you right when it started? No. So how did that experience of I never knew. I never knew nothing about human trafficking. I never knew that I was being exploited. I never knew. I didn't wake up and be like, oh, this is what's happening to me. Um, Even when I first learned about the situation, I was 16 years old and I still didn't think, it took me a long time. It took me actually, I'm probably still figuring it out in this process, like, is this what happened? Because to me, it was, it's just totally different for me. It wasn't that I thought that I, I just didn't know. And sometimes I be thinking like, okay, maybe that just came with the life. That came with the territory. And it's not, I haven't fully understand it yet. I'm just not there to fully say that, you know, this is, even though I understand that this happened to me, and it might be dramatic for other people and things like that, but it was my life.
1: Maybe you're surprised to hear that a child under government care was trafficked. The first time I heard it, I was definitely shocked. I mean, this is the kind of kid the child welfare system is supposed to take care of. But the reality sometimes is totally different. Do you feel like kids in the system
4: are easier targets for people who are trying yeah. to exploit them? Yeah, I think any, any kid is an easy target that don't know how to love themselves or wasn't provided with love and care. Because how do you know your worth as a person and say that, hey, I know now, like if you come to me and ask me to do something, oh no, I'm just not doing it. I know that now. So if you educate your child on it or you make them aware of certain things, they know what to see. I think the government care system is broken. And I think that there's a lot of situations where we as Children that's in the foster care system, we don't know where we're supposed to be either. It's broken because there's not enough social workers. And even though, like, I share my story all the time and when I talk to them, it's never a surprise. So it's never not like, oh, this rarely happens. Like, oh, this happens all the time. So they knew? Yeah, they know. There's no secret. It's never a secret. It's never like, oh my God, I can't believe this happened to you. And if the social workers are not actually going to the house to check and again, if the, the social workers don't see you, you don't know what home you are supposed to be at. It's like literally, you don't know where you're supposed to be. You know, okay, I was here last, but then when I went back there, she told me she don't have me no more. So it's like, okay, do I go to the social worker and turn myself in? Because you are, if you run away from your foster home or you run away from anything, you are considered a runaway youth, which you can get arrested for.
1: It's true. Kids in government care don't have a lot of options. If their foster parents or legal guardians don't know what to look for, or don't care to look, it means that the kid is easier to take advantage of. And the child welfare system is totally stretched. They're understaffed, underfinanced, and the job is
4: exhausting. If you grew up in foster care and you grew up around certain things, this is not a nightmare. This is your life. And that's what it was, like, my life. And I truly, you know, I think, you know, God just had a different plan for me. And this is who I, you know, became. And it happens, like, and I just think that there are plenty of things that could have been done in my story that would have helped me, but it it was who I needed, what I needed to go through, like, at that time. Not to say that someone should use my story and be like, hey, I'm gonna let this girl go through everything, because maybe it's for her to go through. No. Because I'm literally, every day, I'm dealing with a battle, like, every day. And I've been over here for, you'd say 19, for about, I don't know, know, Since 2010, every day I still wake up. Sometimes I feel some type of way. Sometimes I feel depressed. Sometimes I don't know how I'm doing this. Somehow, like, every day is literally, it's a struggle. Like, And it's, 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 it's a struggle, but it's like somehow I'm still making it.
1: Ashley has moved out, but she has a stable place to live and a source of support while she gets her master's degree in social work. But so many other kids in the system are not as lucky. And throughout my journey, I've seen time and time again that trafficking and exploitation are often the result of this kind of vulnerability. The vulnerability of people who have no access to housing or food. Kids who have no one to truly look after them. And... Pretty much everyone agrees. When it comes to the question of who's the most vulnerable, it's always the kids. And that's something I really need to explore further. So if you don't mind just giving your first and last name. Sure. So my name's Beth Bouchard. So can you just tell me a little bit about what are we doing in this room? I'm in a dark room surrounded by stacks of machines with blinking buttons. In the front of me is a huge window smudged with fingerprints. And on the other side of that window is a small yellow room with a few toys and chairs. There's a quilt hanging on the wall covered in drawings of children's faces. The window actually is a
5: two-way mirror. This is
1: an observation room.
5: So right here, you're in the observation room for a forensic interview at RCAC. So when kids are able to come in and talk about the abuse that they've experienced, they'll come here and they'll sit on the other side of the mirror with a forensic interviewer who's specially trained to talk to kids about abuse in a non-leading way, um, in a way that lets the child talk about what they want to share from start to finish.
1: Beth Bouchard is a program manager at the Children's Advocacy Center of Suffolk County. The room we're in is in Boston, Massachusetts, a place that's taking a more holistic approach to dealing with exploitation of kids in government care. They've decided not to treat exploited kids like criminals. Like Ashley just mentioned, many places arrest kids who run away from their guardians. The government here in Boston is also teaming up with nonprofits like this one to make sure that kids in their care are really seen
5: and taken care of. And so usually when a child's been trafficked, exploited, or abused, there's a lot of multidisciplinary collaterals, we call them, Um, different partners from different systems that need to help that child um, to heal and to address any crimes that might have happened. So usually in this room, you're going to have a detective who's looking at any crimes that might have occurred. You're going to have a prosecutor, a victim-witness advocate, who is there to support the family if the case goes forward legally. How do kids end up in these situations? It's a great question. Um, you know, any youth could be potentially victimized by exploiters. We, at our scene program, see that youth of every age, every background, every socioeconomic neighborhood and class in Boston, um, You know, th- that's the representation of our kids, kids of all different backgrounds and dynamics. We do see that there are certain common risk factors that most of our youth have in common. Um, about 2 thirds of the youth referred to scene are kids of color. Over 75% of youth referred to scene have a history of child abuse previously. Um, And so, that being said, over 70% of the kids referred to scene have a history with the child welfare system as well. Is the child welfare system to blame? We we don't blame the child welfare system. We see the child welfare system as an integral partner in this work for us. So we work very closely every day with the child welfare system. We work with juvenile justice because many of our kids um, might have a status offense that's related to their exploitation or trafficking. Um, or they might have a delinquency charge related to their exploitation or trafficking. Maybe their exploiter made them shoplift or made them carry drugs or guns for them. Um, we see... That, you know, we work with a DA's office, law enforcement at all levels. um, And we sort of convene all these different systems to think together about the needs of kids and to intervene for high-risk and exploited youth.
1: Why exactly is it that such a high proportion of kids who have been in government care are the ones who are being exploited?
5: Um, I think that's challenging to answer. I think in my experience, what we've seen, sort of two different things. I think, one, the kids who are involved in group care typically have experienced trauma before. Um, You know, they've been victimized before. And so some of that trauma um, and that victimization is what exploiters and perpetrators are looking for. So I think that because the number is so high, that means two things. One, that perpetrators are targeting the most vulnerable youth. They're looking for those kids who have experienced trauma and abuse before. Um, But two, I also think that kids in group care, um, kids in government you know, receiving support by the child welfare system, typically they have a lot of eyes on them because there might be social workers working with them. There might be you know, out-of-home placement providers. Um, and so sometimes I think the number is high because maybe they're involved with systems that identify the red flags and risk factors um, because they have more eyes paying attention to what they might have been experiencing.
1: I keep trying to imagine what it's like for a kid on the other end of that glass, surrounded by strangers, asking them questions that would make them uncomfortable. I think I personally would feel intimidated and voiceless, so I can't imagine what it would be like as a kid. But Beth seems to really have all of that in mind. She's working hard to give a voice to the kids who don't have one. So, what happens to kids who might not have an advocate like Beth Bouchard? Kids who never make it into the government care system, or kids who ran away? It turns out there's a place right in my backyard that's helping youth who are homeless. That is after the break.
3: I'd
1: ring the doorbell. Hello. Hi, it's Eric and Noor. Hi, come on up. So many kids experience homelessness in the United States. According to the National Center on Family Homelessness, about two and a half million school age kids are homeless. million, kids who are homeless are really at risk of being sexually exploited, especially if they're kids of color and or LGBT. And it's pretty striking. One study from UPenn found that 41 percent of homeless kids who are sex trafficked are approached for sex on the very first night of being homeless. I know about this organization in D.C. called Sasha Bruce Youth Work, and it turns out they have a youth drop-in center not too far from my apartment. So I stopped by with my producer, Eric, to see what they were up to, and we met the woman who runs things, Pam Lieber.
2: Oh are you? Good, how are you? I'm Eric. Hi, nice to meet you. Great to meet you. Good. Nor, Hi. Good to Very meet you. nice to meet you. So for the quick tour, let me show you. Um, so we are kind of um, operate Monday through Friday, 8 to 6, we have a kitchen where we serve breakfast, lunch, and dinner every day. We try to make sure that folks eat better than they do in some other places. So um, I shop at Costco every two weeks, spend 600 bucks. Staff fix dinner and lunch and breakfast. We usually do the buffet style stuff, and we also have a relationship with District Donuts next door. And so at the end of every day, they donate to us the donuts that they would throw away initially. And so we are we are sugar happy at the end of every day. That's lovely. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. My um, stomach starts so growling thinking
1: about those donuts. I'm making up fasting days for Ramadan. So I can't have any, but they sound so good.
2: We kind of tried to set it up just so that it feels
1: Pam shows us even more. They have a laundry room, two full bathrooms, lockers the youth can use, a computer lab, and they even have a GED teacher. It may not sound like it, but all of these things are a huge deal. I mean, really think about it. When you don't have a place to live, what do you really have access to? You end up not having a place to keep any of your stuff. You don't have a place to really clean your clothes. You don't have a place to get food or warmth. This drop in center provides all of that. And the place has been open for two and a half years. Pam has been here since the very beginning. Today is an administrative day, so the center is closed. But Pam says it's usually totally full during the day. She shows us a room in the back where they have group meetings and
2: mentor sessions. And then also art therapy. Uh, on Friday afternoons, we have a volunteer art therapist who comes. He's not here every Friday, um, but he's usually here about two Fridays a month based on his schedule. Amazing. And um, and they love um
1: they love the art in this place is like probably what
2: stands out to me the most So they did this is one of the art therapy projects that they did and there's
1: pam points to a quilt hanging up on the wall and if you want to see a picture of it text the word quilt to the number 202-804-2480 that's q-u-i-l-t to the number 202-804-2480
2: Each patch is painted with something different. They had um, the young people pick out a symbol. um, And each of those symbols represent certain things like courage or strength or power. And then depict a time in their life that they felt that thing. Um, And so that was specifically created by our young people.
1: There are patches painted with abstract things like circles and diamonds. And then other pictures of people. One person holding a Bible and wearing a cross necklace. One person standing out in a rainstorm. Another patch is a close-up of Barack Obama's face. We take a seat at the table while Pam goes to get some of the guys she works with. I can't stop looking at all of the artwork. It's so clear there are stories in all of them. This is such an awesome spot. It's like so welcoming and the art's so amazing. Pam brings in four young guys. They're all in their early 20s. We agree to stick with their first names because they're all in pretty vulnerable situations. The first guy who walks in is wearing a white t-shirt and a pair of jeans. He's eating peanut butter right out of the jar. His name is Joe. I'm fasting, so that peanut butter looks so good right now. No, wait, don't be—no, keep eating it, like, for me, vicariously, you know? (laughs) All of the guys come and sit around the table with us, and I introduce myself because I want them to feel comfortable. And as soon as I do, they get right into their own stories.
3: My name's Darrell. I'm from Washington, D.C.
1: Darrell is sitting on my right, and he's dressed super fresh. He has on a red, white, and blue polo shirt, some silver jewelry, and his hair is in dreads.
3: I got homeless because of life. Like, um, I was with my mother. She lost her job. We went separate ways. I couldn't win with her, but I couldn't go in the shelter with her, so I let mm-hmm. her get herself together. And I just found this.
1: Was that tough, like being separated from your mom because the shelters of don't?
3: Of course. It would be tough for you if you was separated from your
1: I couldn't imagine. Right. After Darrell and his mom separated, he says things got a whole lot worse.
3: I got in trouble with the law, but it wasn't like me taking nothing from nobody. I was out job court. I got my certification from CNA, certified nursing assistant. And then that same day when I got my certification, we went out to celebrate. You know, regular things, you get too drunk. I woke up in jail. So I lost everything that night because the police said they didn't have it. So I came here, and then they helped me get my birth certificate, my ID, my social security card. Before them, I couldn't get my stuff because by yourself when you're homeless, The DMV is backwards. Like, to get your ID, you need your birth certificate. But to get your birth certificate, you need your ID. So you can't really get nothing.
1: It's like a vicious cycle.
3: Right. Like, they don't want to help you. But, like, coming here, I could use their residency. Mm
1: -hmm.
3: And I got my. It was simple as that. It took me a year by myself. It took me, like, three weeks just to wait on my stuff to get it. So.
1: What are your goals right now?
3: To get a a house and then a job. I'm on that road right now, like, recently, like, so recent, so.
1: Are you still into nursing?
3: Yes, I'm about to go back to school. That's another thing. They help you get back into school. You don't really have to pay nothing. I'm about to be a registered nurse now, like, the next step up. So it's whatever you want to do. So.
1: Congrats. It's amazing. Yeah. We talked a lot about these guys' stories and how having the drop-in center is so helpful to them. But it took a while for them to really open up to me about their life on the street. What about being homeless and a young person is so dangerous? What are some of the dangers that you guys have come across?
3: You get hungry. Yeah. Yeah, you get hungry, and then you got to do certain things to help yourself.
1: This is Marquise.
3: And then... You on the street? Sometimes you got people pulling up to you. You got to watch your back sometimes because people getting robbed out. You know the same shit, but different situations be going on. You gotta watch your back when people pull up on you. Man, that's rest mainly. Like he said, like he said, you gotta watch that because people pull up on you on some dangerous games. I done had cats pull up on me in vans. No funny. Asking for sex. No, no funny. Sex. Like, I'm and then, funny. then you don't know if it's a pull up. Like, they about to shoot you on us, so you got to back up a little bit, or oh, instincts got, adrenaline yeah, got kicking in for, like, two seconds. Come in. on, two seconds. Come Like, you got it. yeah, It's big harsh, man. It's big like...
1: Fast. You've had people come up to you yeah, asking for sex?
3: you no, well, going on for since I was 17. Like
1: Don't you think that if people were to hear that people had approached you guys for sex while you were out, like... People don't know that even, like, young men are getting approached for sex. Like, that's not something that people assume. I was fit it out here.
3: Look, Pull up, or beep the horn, look back, double back, really. beep the horn again. Pull up, roll, it, roll it the one of That's why I... I that's that's happened to you, too? Okay.
1: Yeah, right there on something
3: happening?
1: Pam, have you come across, like, a lot, of, a lot of the clients that come through here, um... <laughs> All genders like who have been approached for sex while? Yeah.
2: I mean, I think more, I think there's a couple things that we hear pretty frequently around here. Number one, um, there's a question that we ask on our assessment, our housing assessment that we talk about, um, about um, are there times that you have to um, do risky things in order to survive? Right. And risky could be, you know, kind of do you rob people? Um, you know, kind of do you have to engage in sex for money? Do you have to? And I'd say probably. 80, 85% of the people answered yes to that question. Um, just to survive out on the street, I have to engage in some type of risky behavior. That's terrifying. So don't know that they would consider it to be what we consider trafficking or solicitation well, or anything wait, like that, but we, what we call it in sort of the industry is we call it survival sex. Which is I was going to say
1: survival. Well, yeah. yeah, that's another. That, so
2: that's bad.
1: That's Joe. He chimed in when he heard us talking about survival sex. And in case you didn't hear him, he asked, that's bad?
2: I think, is it bad? I, yeah, I don't like to attach judgment think, to it, but if you feel like you have to sleep with someone just to have a place to live or food to eat or something like that, and if you had different choices, you would make a different choice. That's I think the thing that's, about survival sex. Yeah. It's like
1: if someone is doing that, if someone is engaging in sex because that's the only way that they can get a meal or they can pay rent and stuff, and that's not what they want to be doing, like you can't, no one can ever say if that's Good or bad, that's that's how that person like that's survival, right? Like that's one of those things where people there's like this misunderstanding of people who sell sex or people who are buying sex because nobody really like you guys said, like nobody will get it unless you're in that situation. So especially when it comes to people of all genders who decide to sell sex. Like there are people who do this consensually. But oftentimes if we're talking about, like, the housing crisis and the opioid epidemic and things that, like, people are doing because they feel like they have no other choice, like, that's what happens. Like, that's something that we've seen a lot in our reporting, which is why we've kind of changed this entire, like, shift. So, and of course, like, if that's your experience, people have approached you for the same thing, like, that's a terrifying situation to be in. Like
3: It's weird. It's weird.
1: It's not just, it's, it's like, it's scary. Th- like, I, I, not to just, like, I don't know. I just, I couldn't ever be, really wrap my mind around it. Like, I don't know what I would it's do. It's not okay.
2: And when you say, is it bad, I think it's not okay. Like, that you feel like it you have be,
4: to say
1: yes
2: to exactly. something you don't want to just to survive.
1: The like, thing is, not- that what's bad, what's bad is that people feel like this is their best option. What's bad is that people feel like they can make more money By selling sex on the street and putting themselves in danger than getting a job if they can even get a job. Like, that's what's bad. That's where, like, this whole moral compass thing comes into play. Because if if that's what we have done as a society where we've given people no other option, where, like, there are mothers who have kids who can't do anything else, like, that's bad. And that's not bad on them. That's bad on us. I didn't push too hard into these guys' stories about how they were approached for sex. They held these stories pretty close to their chest, and I get why. This stuff is really hard to talk about. But to be honest, I don't need to hear the nitty-gritty details. I mean, we all know how this goes. I'm much more interested in hearing about how they're working towards their own future. And to be honest, hanging out with the guys was really fun. I mean, we touched on everything— From the deep stuff like what it's like to live on the streets to pop culture and what Kanye's saying these days. It felt really good to see they were getting some of the things they needed here at the drop-in center. Things they didn't have access to anywhere else. Things like a place to wash their clothes or have a shower. A community to support them in getting a job and a place to live. And at the end of the day, Free donuts. Long enough for the donuts. Long
2: enough for the donuts, Oh my god. I've been donuts no, so bad. bad. The ones in the middle, they just
3: crazy.
1: This past year and a half has been an incredibly turbulent ride through America's sex trade. There have been so many bumps along the road. But more importantly, I've also had moments of clarity. The first moment I felt that clarity was on our first stop in Kentucky. After hearing Chantel's story, I realized some people who go through sexual exploitation actually don't know they're being exploited until way after. One
4: day when I was in the hotel, I just decided to read a newspaper, and it was about a a story about a girl who was, she couldn't go anywhere, she couldn't talk to anyone, she couldn't look at anyone. She, all she did was work, 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 and she described it as invisible bars, which is so true, and that's when I just started crying and weeping, and I was just like, what in the world, what do I do? That's when I was like, that's me.
1: In Nevada, I spent time in one of the legal brothels there. And I met a woman by the name of Willow Love. She told me about a time before she worked at the brothel where she did have a pimp. And she wasn't allowed to keep any of the money. And he was abusing her. But when I asked her if she considered this trafficking, she said no. Did you feel safe
5: with the pimp? Um yeah, in a certain way, yeah. I mean I felt Did he let you money? But he no, he he controlled the money and he um I did, you know, get beat up before by him, but I figured out why I wasn't getting beat up. (laughs) What was Um It's so cheesy though, like I hate to explain I hate to say it, but like it's like if you, it's like the old school rules. So, like, if you are around certain types of people and you look up and you look at them in the eye, like you're not allowed to do that. You're supposed to look down. <laughs> like, Why? Um, because you might run off with the other guy. But those are like
1: the old street rules. Yeah. And in that situation, did you feel like you
4: had a choice? Yeah, I was choosing to be there.
1: And that story really messed me up because I was so sure that this was trafficking. I mean, by the government definition and standards, that is trafficking. But Willow doesn't label herself as a trafficking victim. So who am I to give that label to her? And I realized how often these labels are thrown around. And how people who aren't experiencing these situations are the ones giving those labels. This was a moment in my journey where I recognized that people have full ownership over their own stories. And depending on their situation, they get to decide how to label it. But there are times where things are much more clear. This takes me back to Maryland, when I spent some time with Ashley. She was forced to
4: have sex with people as a kid, and therefore, she was trafficked. If you grew up in foster care and you grew up around certain things, this is not a nightmare. This is your life. And that's what it was, like, my life.
1: Sex trafficking is a really ambiguous government term that means something different to everyone. And because everyone is so obsessed with the word itself, that puts a lot of other communities in harm's way. And my eyes were opened to that harm when I met Leia Monadas in D.C.
4: You know, any one of these girls, if I can do anything to help a young trans person or other sex worker, cis woman, to not have that happen to them,
0: I will do it. I don't care what the cost is because
4: I don't want that to ever happen to another human being again. I'm, I'm not a piece of trash. I'm a human being and I don't deserve to be treated that way.
1: I've met so many people and their personal stories have made me feel everything, from sad to hopeful, and sometimes they've even changed my mind. But one thing is more clear to me than ever before. Sex work is filling an economic void for a lot of folks. It provides things that society doesn't. Things like access to food and housing. And when we criminalize sex work, sometimes we're making it worse. When we take away a person's only option to eat, where does that leave them? And to be honest, what does that say about us? It's so clear that a lot of decisions made around sex work are rooted in people's own moral compass. And for many, the needle of that compass is stuck directly on sex and people's bodies. But, I mean... We seem to be comfortable with turning a blind eye to racism, sexism, and poverty. And yeah, it feels overwhelming. And the truth is, we are all part of the problem, but we can also be a part of the solution. Here's the thing. When I first started this, I had a really narrow focus, and I quickly realized that all of our societal issues end up being related one way or another. And for me personally, I've decided to make a conscious effort towards helping people experiencing homelessness. After 10 years of doing grocery runs for our local shelter and distributing winter and hygiene care packages to people in need, my family and I actually started a foundation called I See You. And the intention is to help alleviate this issue of homelessness. And remember when I worked on the clothing line that donated half of its profits to fight sex trafficking? Well, we brought that back, and now, knowing what I know, I've chosen to partner with the National Network for Youth who work with young people experiencing homelessness. These are small, local efforts, but intentional. And it's these small, intentional efforts that can leave a lasting impact on people's lives. We have something so special coming up for you next week in your feed. In our final and bonus episode of this season of Sold in America, we're passing the mic on to you, our listeners. We asked you to submit stories, questions, and comments, and we got a ton of responses. So first and foremost, thank you for that. We also are bringing back two guests onto the show to help answer some of your questions. This episode is incredibly special to me. Because it's a reminder that a lot of us share similar experiences, and therefore, a lot of us have similar questions and similar thoughts. And we know sometimes it's really hard to get answers to those questions, so we want to be there for you, and we want to go through everything. I hope you choose to tune in for the next episode, and I can't wait to talk to you soon. in America is reported and produced by me, Noor Tagori, with Eric Krupke, Kate Grumke, and Kevin Clancy. The show is edited by Suzanne Reber and Ellen Wise. Our executive editor is Peter Clowney. Sound design and original theme music by David Herman. Special thanks to Mark Fahey, Karen Rodriguez, Aisha Bogshi, and Rick Kwan. We also want to thank Andrew Haig for our collaboration with GroundSource. Sold in America is a production of the Scripps Washington Bureau and Stitcher. Our senior producer is John Asante. Our executive producers are Jenny Radalit and Chris Bannon. I'm Noor Tagori. You can find me on Instagram and Facebook at Noor and Twitter at N Tagori. And I'd also love it if you checked out our video documentary. You can find it by Googling Newsy Sold in America. If you like this show, and I really hope you do, don't forget to rate it and review it on the Apple Podcast app. It really helps other people find the show. And, of course, thank you so much for listening.
5: Ditcher.
0: You can think of household name episodes as lifelines when you're stuck in a boring conversation. Need to change the subject? Tell them the secrets behind Victoria's Secret. Or how a single lie turned KFC into a Japanese Christmas tradition. It was a lie. That no. uh,
3: <laughs> I still regret that.
0: Did you know Panera opened cafes where customers could pay whatever they wanted? that before it was a hippie car, the VW Beetle was created by Nazis.
5: Hitler built a city for the Beetle? (laughs) Like the hippie Beetle?
0: (laughs) You can talk about how LaCroix, Crocs, Carhartt, and Canada Goose all became surprisingly cool, and wow your friends with stories of TGI Friday's wild early days as one of the first singles bars.
4: I'd be standing at the bar on Fridays and say, hi, darling, I own this place. it seemed to work.
0: I'm Dan Bobkoff and I host Household Name from Business Insider and Stitcher. We make this show so you have something to talk about. Subscribe to Household Name for surprising stories about famous brands. Find it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Household Name brands you know, stories you don't. This for the record. There it is a win for the ages.
5: Tiger Woods is one of our most awe-inspiring sports icons. And his story, it comes with many chapters.
0: I am deeply sorry for my irresponsible and selfish behavior. But here
5: it is. The return to glory. This is All American, a new series from Stitcher, hosted by me, Jordan Bell.
3: You realize Tiger Woods doesn't know who he is. Best in the history of golf. No question in my mind.
5: And this season, with the help of journalist Albert Chen, we're asking. What if
0: the story of Tiger Woods that the media has been telling, what if it's been completely wrong?
5: All-American Tiger is out now. Listen in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app.
0: One of these dusty old, out-of-print mafia books is called King of Crime.
2: King of Crime!
3: I'm here in her living room in Chico, California, and we're just going through memories of her son.
2: All of this talk of wellness, of being healthy and having a positive mindset and all that, it's really caused my anxiety to spike.
0: And I can almost see myself writing them, cross-legged in front of a framed photo of Franklin Jones.
2: But a lynching does more than kill a body. It shatters an identity. All the circumstantial evidence, all my research, the interviews, everything pointed in one conclusive direction. Or so I believed.
1: If I was ever going to talk about this for the first time publicly, I think that this would be the ideal time. Because this I really want you to understand this is why I'm so passionate about this.
0: She's hiring drag queens and drag kings and giving them a platform to express themselves and to make money.
1: Their sense of
2: self-worth self-preservation. And ultimately, their sense of justice is what carried them through to the end.
3: What I love so much about story and hearing other people's story is that it's the closest thing that we have to magic.
5: This is Witness Docs.